Hi there, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live stage shows. Our topic today is all about how people's relationships with faith institutions are changing. We had on three guests to chat about it. Our first guest is Kyle Roberts, who is the VP of Academic Affairs and Dean of the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Our second guest is Zan Christ, who is the Coordinator of Religious and Spiritual Life Programs at Hamlin University. Our final guest is Chris Stedman, the author of Faithiest and former director of the Yale Humanist Community. So, I am so uh, excited to talk with you all. Um, I do, I, as I, I noted before we got started, like the problem with this topic is that uh, it's so big, there's so much that we could talk about, that how are we going to do this all in, in a short show? So, I thought we'd just go in a totally different direction and just talk about you. Uh, so, but I actually think that that's interesting because you each have like this fascinating story of where you got to where you are now. And just as like an age before beauty thing, I'm going to start with Kyle, which is, so you, we started, I, I set up this show and called it like an evangelical, a Muslim and an atheist walk into a show. And then I got this email. It's like, well, he's not technically an evangelical. He's a post evangelical, which I was like. Wow, that is so hipster. But if you can, um, what does that mean? And can you just talk to us a little bit about how you got to where you are and, and how that journey sort of happened? And what okay. is a post, post-evangelical? Yeah. What is a post-evangelical? How did I get to be one? And you have about 12 seconds. Yeah, so, right. um, <laughs> Raised a pastor's kid in a very conservative Christian environment, and an environment that I would call definitely kind of the classical evangelical. Uh, Christianity um, over the the long course of my religious life I progressed the, theologically away from or some would say regressed uh, away from my conservative evangelical roots and then you get into all the complicated questions of what is an evangelical and who are the evangelicals today and nobody wants to be one anymore but there's a lot of them out there and they all voted for Trump so or 80% of them did um, and so it's, it's, but yeah, what was your question? No, I was going to say, that's, I, I don't mean to contradict you, but there are people who do want to be evangelicals, I believe. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah just yeah. not you. Right. But yeah. it, within the evangelicals, right. there's a big conversation okay. about whether the word has cachet anymore. And, oh. And for PR purposes, whether it'd be better to, to leave it behind. In any case, I, uh, when I came to United, that kind of coincided with my own, um, sense of identity in terms of leaving evangelicalism behind, and so this gets into the religious identity question and kind of embracing a more sort of liberal mainline Protestant form of Christianity. But to be a post-evangelical, I say, means you're always you're you're going after something that 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 follows the 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 sense that what was there in evangelicalism is no longer fertile religious territory ground. Okay. The, it seems like there's a lot to unpack in there, but I want to give our other two guests a chance. And I don't know if I, either, uh, Zan, maybe I'll, I'll come to you because you have both a personal story and you work every day with students who are, I imagine, part of your job is that they come to you with these same sort of, like, am I an evangelical or a post-evangelical or... A vegan or what? I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, no. So um, 
my day job is to work with college students, the best job ever, and we get to talk about religion all day, so two great things I love. Um, so, yeah, lots of people on different journeys. I, as well, you know, was on a journey. My dad was also a pastor growing up, ELC, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, um, and then I also kind of drifted away from the faith and um, was atheist for eight years, and then I converted to Islam in grad school. So went on lots of different journeys. Um, so that's a little bit about my, my background. Also grew up in a small town, very conservative. Um, so excited to come to the cities for my undergrad to get some world culture and diversity um, exposure to the world. So that's a little bit about my background. I mean, and I'm just, and I, I, I'm going to go to Chris in just a second, but you have a, that's a very, like, that's a lot of different paths. Is this a similar story to, like, what you hear from other students, that they do a lot of these different paths, or that they even maybe do something similar, where it's like, oh, I was always this, and now I'm going to try something else? Or what, what do folks, students actually say to you when they come to you? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot of atheists at Hamlin as well. It's kind of a trend, um, or a lot of people who were Christians. Like, like it's a trend, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's you trendy. know, Instagram. That, that is or... one of the trends, yeah, that's on par um, with millennials and just with pure research of, of religion right now. Nuns are on the rise, which I'm sure my other panelists will talk about as well. But um, So it is very trendy to be, to be not religious. Um, that's on the rise, and... Lots of, yeah, my students are on different journeys. Having a multi-faith identity is really in right now, too. Um, we have, you know, a Buddhist Jew, or um, we have one student that I supervise who um, has a parent who's Christian and one is Buddhist, so they're kind of like, what, which one should I pick? Should I do both? Should I? Taboo. Yeah. I'll suggest that to them when I get yeah, back it's probably to work offensive. tomorrow. So, uh, Perhaps. Chris, <laughs> thank you. Chris, uh, I, w- I waited you for last, because you wrote a whole book about uh, identity and where you are, so... Um, I don't, do you want to, I'm sure everyone's already read it, but if you want to just, um, if you just want to maybe recap a little bit of where, how did you end up here? Sure. Well, unlike uh, my fellow panelists, I didn't have a journey at all. Um, If you open the book, there's just nothing inside. Mm. Um, It's amazing that it sold that well. Yeah. yeah, Well, I mean, you know, what is there to say about being an atheist? Right. uh, Besides not believing in anything. No, uh, that's actually I think one of the one of the reasons why I'm so interested in conversations like this and why I've done the professional work that I've done. Um, I grew up actually non-religious, um, and I converted and became an evangelical Christian when I was around 11 years old. Um, I had some internal struggles around that because I'm also queer and. Um, ultimately made my way into the ELCA, the Lutheran Church, went to a Lutheran college here in Minneapolis, Augsburg University. And it was there at Augsburg that I was um, studying religion, majoring in religion. And I was challenged by my uh, religion professors, all of whom were Christian, to ask myself why I believed the things that I believed. And um, it was through that process that I started to realize that for me, I had become a Christian when I was younger because I was looking for a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of identity and purpose, and that, um, you know, I was learning about sort of life's big questions in school, but I didn't felt, feel like I had a space to kind of unpack those questions and to think about what it meant to sort of develop ethics and then move from those into action. And I found in a faith community a space to do that. Um, But I realized for me it was much more about the function of the community and less about the theology, which for me had never really uh, made as much sense. And so 
I sort of came out on the other side of that journey realizing that I was an atheist, um, not just because it's trendy, although I'm very happy to be the trendy one on the panel for once. Um, and, and yet, um, once I realized I was an atheist, I kind of struggled with the fact that I didn't feel like there was a, a community for me. I, you know, kind of what brought me into Christianity and when I was younger was seeking that kind of a community, that space to reflect on the big questions of life. And I, feel, I felt like I didn't have that. And all I was really hearing from atheists in the broader culture was the sort of no of atheism, what atheists don't believe, what we oppose, what we're against. There was a lot of defining ourselves in contrast or in conflict. And I felt like I was more interested in finding spaces to gather with other folks who shared my worldview and explore the yes of atheism, what we do believe. And uh, that's ultimately what led me to my work as an interfaith activist and a humanist uh, community organizer for non-religious people. I mean, that's so, uh, I, that is such a great segue into uh, a lot of the conversation I wanted to have. And I, and I do want, I kind of want to come back to, to Kyle for a second because you're, at a seminary, you're teaching folks right now. Um, and I'm wondering, like, that question that Chris brought up of, like, his professors pushing him, why do you believe this? Why are you pursuing this? I mean, I, I, I've done some work with United Theological Seminary. I'm guessing that's a thing United does pretty well. But was it something that you had growing up sort of in a more conservative evangelical background? Yeah, I didn't have that growing up. Um, I, I acquired that for myself on my own, actually, as I started teaching theology in an evangelical context. So asking those questions and then having students to ask those questions as well. Um, but at United, definitely, that's, that's uh, the air we breathe is the kind of critical questioning, exploring, kind of questing after something. Okay, so to get to some of the meat of this and to play devil's advocate, uh, which is just... So you... Uh, pride yourself on like asking those really tough questions and I was raised Lutheran as well I ended up being a really lousy Buddhist and so all of our like all of this like trying to push us to ask these questions seem to be like actually driving us away from some of these faith structures or these like religious institutions you know the surveys show that evangelicalism is on the rise that there are more people who are like going down that path. So maybe we should never have, like, invited people to ask these hard questions of themselves and should have just, like, you should just switch over to just blind faith, everybody, like, and here's the offering plate. Go ahead. As the catch-22 of uh, progressive Christianity is the people find themselves out the other end of, of the thing and they're out the door uh, more easily than in forms of religion like conservative ev evangelicalism to offer certainty and here's how you've got to live and here's how you go to heaven and not hell and so on. But in fact, in the younger generations, evangelicalism is not on the rise. The younger people are leaving conservative Christianity. They're becoming nuns. So the trend is actually the other direction. One of the reasons is because that they, they don't like this kind of obsession about certainty and rules, and here's how you live, and kind of the judgmentalism that goes along with that. So it is a problem. I mean, the, the, there is a catch-22 to kind of progressive religion, uh, is that it's harder to keep people within the walls. But I think that's, it's worth it uh, for what you gain on the, you know, the flip side. Chris, what, what is the organizing principle then, I guess, or what, you know, that sense of community? What, how, how does it come together? 
Well, that's, I mean, that's a challenge for people who are trying to organize communities for non-religious people, because if you use a really broad definition of non-religious, or even if, you, if you're just talking about trying to organize communities for atheists, trying to organize a group of people whose shared feature, whose shared characteristic is not believing in something or not being a part of something leaves everything else open for disagreement. And so... <laughs> And, uh, you know, that's not, a, that's not an exclusive problem to non-religious people, but it is, I think, one of our biggest challenges. And so you've got, you know, I wrote a piece earlier this year for Vice on the growing number of religiously unaffiliated young people, especially young white men, who are becoming affiliated with the alt-right. And part of that, I think, is because you've got this young population of people who are disconnected from institutions. And I think this is a big part of the sort of growing number of people that we see disaffiliating from religious institutions, it has something to do with questioning, with not sharing the beliefs of those institutions anymore, with seeing those institutions as being too aligned with politics that they don't agree with. But it also has to do with a broader suspicion with institutions, which we're seeing play out in our political life. We're seeing that sort of everywhere. And so you've got this growing number of people who are not a part of any institution, who are disconnected, who are disaffiliated, and who many of whom, if they are non-religious, also experience social isolation. You know, we, we see many surveys that show that atheists and other secular folks are broadly uh, distrusted. They're viewed really negatively. And so a lot of these people may have experienced family rejection or isolation or feel like they can't talk to other people about it. And so they're seeking out community online and a growing number of sort of atheist-affiliated websites are becoming closer and closer affiliated with certain segments of the alt-right. So you've got someone like Richard Spencer, who is the sort of self-appointed leader of the alt-right, a white nationalist, and he also is an atheist, and he did an interview with an atheist blog talking about that. And so to me, that's why I've become um, super involved in humanist organizing and humanist community building, because for me, atheism is a central feature of my worldview. It's an important piece of what I believe. If I believe, if I take seriously the idea that I don't think there are any gods or supernatural forces, that's a part of what motivates me to act in the world, to say that if the arc of the moral universe is going to bend toward justice, that we have to bend it. Um, but it's really, my atheism is really only the first step in my worldview, and everything else that comes after that is informed by it, but is more important. And so I can't say that Richard Spencer is not an atheist because he says he is. I can't argue with that. But I can say humanism, which is a, a philosophical tradition for non-theists, which makes us a set of claims and affirmations about what our responsibilities are to one another, how we determine what's right and wrong. I can hold up the things that Richard Spencer says and does against humanism and say, he doesn't represent humanists. And so I just think that there's not enough there there if you're trying to organize communities for non-religious people around simply being non-religious. But there's still so much that we don't know, and that's yeah. why the one of the big projects I'm working on right now is with a group of researchers at the University of Minnesota. We're doing a big survey to study the beliefs, practices, and community affiliations of the religiously unaffiliated to try to learn more about what does community actually look like for them. Where are they getting the needs met that they've gotten met in religious institutions and such? Well, that was going to be that's a great segue again to because you've made a great case. Just it seems like you up right perfect. Here, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, uh, you've made a great case for the say, uh, the the need uh, that's there, right? Like the need for community, the need for belonging and whatnot. And I think that 
I don't. I imagine that you know you've also laid out. There's a challenge in trying to put that together uh, without maybe the backbone that uh, like a long-term religious institution is got sort of inherently. And so I, you, Zan, spent time as an atheist and then went back to a faith and or went to a new faith. And I'm curious what, why, what brought you there? Yeah, exactly what Chris was talking about. Um, I was unhappy being Christian, but then I was unhappy being atheist. I'm like, these both don't fit me. What should I do? And then, um, because I just, yeah, I I felt depressed, and I I didn't have that community. And, and, um, you know, I I know growing up, like, church people are so nice, you know, because they um, are really educated about their faith, and they really live their faith. And I find that a lot of religious people are like that. But anyway, fast forward um, to grad school is where I met... um, Somali and Pakistani students, and those are Muslim-majority populated countries, and um, they just had the best character, and I was just drawn to how hospitable they were, and just, they were just such good people, and I was like, hmm, I should look into this Islam thing, um, and, and I had previously was a religion major as well um, as an undergrad student, so academically I'd studied Islam, um, but just as an academic endeavor, I never thought I would convert to the, another religion, um, just that doesn't make sense coming from like a small town with like no diversity experience. So I never thought I would become a Muslim. You mean your your small town high school didn't have like a career fair like choose your religion like uh, become a Muslim? Yeah, yeah why no. not? Um, yeah, no. So I think that's what didn't work about um, being atheist is I just I felt so empty because what Chris was saying of just I just felt like there was nothing. So I was like, okay, well I don't believe in this. You know, I definitely don't feel like I'm Christian for sure, so I'm just going to reject the whole thing, like, no. But then it was like, well, now I have nothing. So that doesn't work either. Um, so then, yeah, Islam, just the beauty of the religion and that community aspect, and it was just so beautiful. And it was so different, um, just the Muslim culture. I know it's, uh, religion and culture are two different things that influence each other, but they're very much connected. And I was very much drawn to, you know, I'm Norwegian, German-American, seventh-generation American. Um, my family you know, it was very white, uh, very Minnesotan, like a typical Minnesotan. And um, we act, you know, individualistic, so I'm very much a product of, of my family of origin. And so I was really drawn to this culture of collectivistic. These people come from collectivistic cultures, very very much not individualistic. So I think I was really drawn to that culture of, like, the community is essential. You know, like, you are part of your, your community. Like, you, you know, people, individuals, like, it's like, oh, you know, like, why are you doing that by yourself, you know, kind of thing. So that was just really beautiful because both my parents are very introverted, socially awkward. I get that from them, And they're too. Minnesotans? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For, yeah, for sure, you betcha. So, um, so, so we never hosted people growing up. So I, I just really, you know, going into my friend's, my friend's house who um, helped me do my conversion to Islam, she and her seven sisters, I went over to their house, and they just greeted you with the biggest smile and just hug you and feed you and clothe you and just give you these gifts and you're just like what is this and it's like they're muslim they're islam they're like living their religion and educated about their faith and that was really refreshing for me because i know a lot of people growing up that were christian weren't really living it It was just kind of like "Mm," um more of like a social thing or like oh i'm christian by name but not really like fully living it and that's weird growing up the daughter of a pastor because my dad was actually not that religious like it was just kind of like I don't know, it was it was kind of part of the life, but it wasn't like, I don't know, it wasn't like super hardcore, you know, like, so that was just, I don't know, it was really refreshing to, like, meet people who are really living their religion, so that was like, oh, wow, you guys are, like, really, really nice, I should look into this Islam thing, and then eventually I converted, so. So, uh, Kyle, I, I, we talked a little bit before the show 
my father is a Lutheran minister, and he went to seminary uh, at a different time, uh, you know, a generation and a half ago, when, as I think that he would admit, you kind of, like, learn to be a pastor and that you open the doors on Sunday morning, and, like, people come because it's a small town, and, like, you know, that's what they're supposed to do or whatnot. He's, when I was a kid, he, we moved to South Florida, where the, like, Lutheran population is very different, uh, very small. And people, start, even there, like, at that time, were, like, choosing to come to church for, I think, a lot of the reasons that uh, Chris and Zan are identifying, right? This community and this, um, uh, the people who are there. What does that church do in the community or whatnot? And then I always think, and so, you know, you have to sort of build that part, I always thought, with him. And then, the reason I'm asking you this is because it seems like, and then there's, like, this piece of, like, well, then do you have an obligation as a pastor to get them to, like, take that extra step that it's like, this is more than just, like, the local Kiwanis club that happens to meet on Sunday mornings. Like, this is a religious faith, and, like, you should come not just because there's free coffee, but because you care about these things. And I'm wondering, when you're teaching, when you're at, in the seminary, do you talk to students about, like, that progression that you're trying to move people along a path? Oh, sure. And, you know, to be Christian in, in, in my context, my tradition, that's, that's a term that came after the formation of the original faith. You know, they, they weren't called Christians, this group of people who were following Jesus around. Um, they were called disciples or followers of the way or whatever term was being used. But they, they, it was a way of life. And I think that is an interesting way to think about you know, talking about inviting people into this way of life or this community or these, these values that are shared and that, that mean that you're investing something in, in the world and committing to, to a way of being that really the name is insignificant. So, so. what's the job then of a, of a pastor today in 2018 or any kind of faith leader uh, in 2018, whether it's a, a rabbi or an imam or a, a Buddhist uh, scholar? Like, what is the, what's your job? What do you teach students that they're supposed to be doing? Don't look at me I'm like that. You're the that? dean of academics at a seminary. That's a great question. <laughs> No, I mean for like religious leaders in in the um, in in Islam, I think like inner peace is the goal of like being a Muslim. So helping people to find their inner peace if they're like troubled, they'll come to you like for counseling sessions or whatever. So that's kind of what I would say is in Islam, like people like salam means peace, right? So people would go to their imam looking for inner peace if they have trouble or or guidance is is kind of a little bit of an answer I would say. Yeah, and I, w- I would say, uh, as a Christian theologian uh, in a mainly Christian seminary, uh, our, the job of the pastor is to share the gospel, the good news, that God is love, and that that love is, is overflowing and available and accessible, and uh, you know, that, that God is, is interested in, in, invested in kind of healing the world, and that we're a part that, that the religious leader, the pastor, is a, an important person in kind of that connection between the love of God and the healing of the world. So, Chris, let me ask you, I, I feel like I know probably a lot more folks who are closer to your uh, journey than uh, our other panels or even myself. But so what, what is it? I, I'm going to just ask you to speak for all millennials, uh, which is just... <laughs> 
No, that's not fair. But I am curious, like, because part of the premise of tonight's show is that there is a change uh, generationally, that it, we do see more of this questioning, more of uh, people who are under the age of 35 either leaving traditional faith or doing multi-faith or going into different... Why? Why now? Yeah, I mean, I think the questioning was always there, right? But I think that there is a little bit more freedom right now. I think we're living in a time of religious fluidity where people are more able to change or leave a religious identity with fewer social consequences. Not to say that there are none. Certainly, as I was saying earlier, people can experience family rejection, social isolation. Um, but certainly, I think it's easier now than it has been at in previous times in our history, at least in our context here. And I also think information is more readily available. I mean, there are studies that show a connection between the increased availability of the internet and the increase in religious disaffiliation. And it's not simply, I think, that everyone is now able to log online and they can read Richard Dawkins' latest blog post and suddenly they don't believe anymore. I think really... Shuts down the internet. When Richard <laughs> Dawkins puts something up, it's just like... Over, but yes. Yeah, I, ha I have a story about Richard Dawkins, but I'm going to save <laughs> it for another all? time. Maybe second half. Um, but I do think that, I think, what, I think what's more going on there is that a lot of the things that people would go to religious spaces in search of, they now go to the internet in search of. So, um, you know, once upon a time, in certain parts of the United States, for a lot of people a religious congregation was the space where they would find community every week, where they would have a space to act on their values, where they would find connection to other people, where they would be reminded that they're trying to live in a certain way. And I think a lot of people are finding those things online now, or at least they're, you know, if you're uh, growing up in a small town and you're in a context that's majority Christian and you have these doubts and questions, you can now go online, you can explore that, you can find other people and feel less alone. And I think there are some really positive aspects of that. But I also think that, you know, there are probably some challenges there. I mean, I worked as a humanist chaplain for the better part of a decade. And what that basically means is that I was a community organizer and counselor for people who considered themselves non-religious. And the thing that I, that that really reinforced for me was that just because someone stops being religious or participating in a religious community doesn't mean that the needs that people have often gone to religious communities to seek out go away. The need to reflect on your life, make sense of your life, explore big questions, uh, have a place to turn to in times of difficulty or celebration, mark big life occasions. And I, I do think, you know, a, a lot of my fellow secular people, when they see these, um, you know, these survey results come out showing that the number of people who say that they're non-religious is skyrocketing, um, that, you know, that's the fastest growing segment of the religious landscape, that it now represents the plurality in a number of states where the largest group is people who are not a part of a religious group. Um, a lot of my fellow atheists and secular folks are excited by that news. They champion it. They say we're winning as if it's this big culture we're war. Winning. Wow. Um, but... I see those numbers and I feel kind of concerned. And the reason I feel concerned is because my question is, where are those people going to reflect on their lives? And I think it's not as if they're not reflecting on their lives or it's not as if they're not struggling with things or trying to make sense of things. It's that they're seeking it out in different spaces. And again, that's part of why I think after doing this for the better part of a decade now and sort of trying our best guess at saying, okay, well, we're going to try doing this and see if this helps 
non-religious people find community and make sense of their lives. And some of those things really working and some of those things really not because I think we were often trying to serve a population of people who had explicitly rejected a sort of religious congregation model by building something that felt similar to a religious congregation but without the religion. And so I think there's some inherent flaws in that model. But I do think, you know, I think we're in a period of sort of innovation where we're completely reimagining what it means to be in community and people are doing really exciting things around that but I also think there's reason to be concerned so I was just going to add to that or, or jump in there to say just because you're a nun doesn't mean you're not religious or you, you don't think of yourself as religious so there's a significant percentage of the nuns I think as much as half of the nuns um, are spiritual and religious. They're just eclectically religious. Yeah, it's actually 70, I think, percent of nuns say that they believe in a God or universal spirit. But my sense, and we'll see if this plays out in the survey that we're doing, but my sense is if you were to ask 10 of those people what they mean by God or universal spirit, you get 10 radically different answers. And so what I'm curious is how many people are using language that they've inherited culturally to describe something that actually means something really different. And we just don't, don't know. So, so. I want to give the, and I should say in the second half of the show, we're going to open up for you all to ask questions, but I want to come back to Zan one last time because you um, are, you're in it. You're in the thick of it with students. Like this is like such a deep, hard conversation and students come to you and they're like, I don't know. Are they like fix it for me or like help me? And so what do you, what do you say? Yeah, no, I I had a a student recently come to me who grew up Buddhist. Uh, Both parents were Buddhist, and they're like, oh, I feel lost. And I was like, oh, I remember that feeling, you know, um, because I I, I shared my story, and I think that helps is to just self-disclose, too, so that they kind of, you know, sharing begets sharing. So I shared that, and then um, she just kind of was telling me what she was struggling with, and um, I tried to, you know, help her to find resources. I'm like, well, maybe, you know, we can like visit a Buddhist temple together or um, we have a meditation group on campus. And I'm like, maybe you can come to that. But it was at a time she has class. So then I'm like, okay, well, the other student leader that's there, can you guys meditate together and do mindfulness activities? So trying to connect her with resources and just listen, you know, that's like the biggest thing is like when somebody's struggling, like listen to them non-judgmentally can be like the biggest thing that you can give them and just bounce off ideas that they already maybe are thinking. Um, because they, you know, with counsel, counseling-centered psychology, it's kind of like the client is the one with the answers. You just kind of um, let them talk and um, just kind of reaffirm, like, hey, you know, I think you're going on the right track. Like, I want to support you in your journey. So that's just, like, one example of, like, one student that I was helping. So. I think that this is so uh, wonderful because it, there's some common thread throughout all the things that you all are saying in that uh, as complicated and, and messy as this conversation and religion or spirituality or lack thereof can seem, it all comes back to seemingly these very human things of like listening to each other and trying to hear each other. So um, I'm sure that we will do lots of that in the second half of the show when we open it up for questions from you all. But for now, can we do a tremendous round of applause for our amazing guest? If you have a question... Raise your hand. I will race towards you in a non-threatening manner with this microphone. And if you have a question, I will give you one of these lovely either uh, Theater of Public Policy stickers or a pop socket if you're a millennial. So, or anybody can have the pop socket. Uh, so, uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will, I'm going to just jump. Uh-oh. Okay, thank you. That is the most impressive thing I will do tonight. Oh, over there, all kinds of hands. Okay, here we go. Hi. Hello. Okay, hi. Hello. I'm wondering how the three of you, if you just have uh, 
insight into how politics is changing the conversations or the kind of the the landscape of your world and the people in your worlds. All right, if everyone wants to order another drink quick, that will help. Uh, uh, anybody want to jump on that one? Religion and politics. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a, ma- a huge conversation right now in our world. In fact, we're having a class this summer at United on religion and politics. Um, and the students are super invested in it because these questions are incredibly contemporary and live questions and how the two intertwine um, has have certain facets of religion simply morphed into politics. Um, and I think that's a, a real investigative question for us is how, how quickly religion can get implemented into or usurped or utilized by a, a political um, agenda or motivation and um, I think that's really back to the, the, the task of what is it that we do when we train pastors is I think we have to help people think through that intertwining. Uh, of course, religion is always going to be political. Um, the, the question that we have to think about critically is to what end and understanding how they are uh, shaped together and morphed together is the first step, I think, toward that. Yeah, I think it's a challenge because... On the one hand, if you look at the demographic data, um, you look at the Pew surveys, and they show that uh, millennials in particular, um, a significant majority, see religious institutions and political institutions as being too intertwined. They think that religious institutions are too bound up in money and politics, and that seems to be a factor in why uh, some young people have left religious institutions. On the other hand, you also hear, and I'm sure that there is some data to back this up that I'm just not aware of, but also that might be wrong, but I hear frequently a lot of people expressing the sort of opposite frustration, feeling like their religious institutions are too politically neutral and are not willing to take stands on things that are important and that that has been part of their sort of disenchantment and disappointment with their religious institutions and has also played a role in their decision to leave. And similarly, among sort of the religiously unaffiliated, I think a lot of folks that I encounter um, have felt like the sort of organized forces for secular folks in this country have been very critical about religion um, and, and have, you know, been super supportive of the separation of church and state, but maybe have not um, been vocal on other issues that it, a lot of my, uh, me and the and my peers care about just as much or more things like Black Lives Matter, things like uh, LGBTQ protections, um, and feeling like those institutions have been so focused on um, certain political agendas like the separation of church and state that they have failed to address things that are um, are things that we really really care about, and so I think what that suggests to me in in both religious institutions and secular ones is that a failure to um, engage issues that are essential to the people that you you claim to serve or wish to serve is uh, going to be um, ultimately, I think, you know, just strategically really harmful for uh, you if you're trying to serve those people. But I also think you're failing to do 
what these communities are supposed to be here for, which is creating spaces where people can go talk about things that matter and figure out how to integrate their ethics and their values into their lives. And so I think on the one hand, there is a great frustration with the failures of certain institutions, be they religious or otherwise, to um, take on issues that matter. And on the other hand, there's uh, a, a real frustration and disappointment with how those institutions have aligned themselves with uh, politics of oppression and with uh, the powerful rather than with people who are being harmed and dehumanized. We have a lot of questions, but I wanted to give Zan if you have a... Yeah, what was, I was texting because I'm a millennial. What was the original question? It was about the intersection of uh, how uh, faith and politics... Yeah, that's what I... Okay, I'd assumed. Okay, so, I mean, for me, I think, uh, growing up, I think because I was from a conservative small town, I had only gotten the picture of conservative Christianity, and so I think that's what pushed me away from it. Now, being a super old lady... 30, uh, 34, um, I realize now that, you know, there are liberal and progressive um, Christians more out there, so I think maybe maybe I could have stuck with the faith had I known more about that, because you can have a spectrum on every world religion of a conservative or liberal, um, so I think that's what pushed me away from Christianity, and then, you know, what drew me to Islam was just, you know, the beautiful culture, but now, now I'm a super progressive Muslim, and the vast majority of Muslims in Minnesota um, are really conservative, so that can be off-putting for me, so I kind of can feel alone again. Um, so I had to go to L.A. To, um, to find some liberal Muslims to hang out with. So that's, that's been like my um, uh, relationship between politics and religion in my journey, so I, I don't know if that's insightful. But. I would totally watch a show about you going to L.A. to like hang out with progressive Muslims. That would be... Amazing. So uh, I have so many follow-up questions, but I'm not going to do that because there's lots of other questions in the audience. I'm losing my nerve, but <laughs> I, I did write something down here. How do you respond to a statement, there is no God but Allah, Isa is his prophet? So what's the question? I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So how would I respond to there's not no God but God and, and Jesus is a prophet? Is this a question sort of about inner faith? Like how do you have these conversations across like – and this is actually something that I, I'll just say that I've had this conversation with my Lutheran pastor father about like, uh, you know, do you – you know, just to make Thanksgiving fun, do you think I'm going to hell? Um, so <laughs> – I does anybody, I mean, how, you do a lot of the interfaith work. Chris, I don't know, do you want to say something about this? Sure. Um, so I am very publicly atheist and very publicly queer. And so as you can imagine, I never have uncomfortable conversations with anybody about various aspects of my identity. Um, I think what I, what I try to do when I find myself in an encounter with someone who is different um, someone who has very different beliefs than I do, and especially if it's someone who has uh, beliefs that are sort of on the other end of the spectrum from me politically or theologically or something, or, or who maybe takes a, uh, a, cert a more kind of hostile approach to our differences, I try to start just in general by listening. I mean, this echoes back to what you were saying earlier, and by asking questions. And so... I think if someone were to say that to me um, without any sort of other context or something, I would proceed to ask questions. I would ask, you know, why um, they were sharing that with me. I would ask what that means to them. 
Um, and, and what I found often is when you ask questions, it then opens up an opportunity for there to be more of an exchange. And I found oftentimes if I react offensively that it kind of shuts that down. And, and one very brief example of this is uh, years ago, I was doing one of my first spe public speaking engagements ever um, at a small uh, a college in, in a small town in southern Illinois. And after I was done with my event, a young woman came up to me and told me very bluntly that I had a demon inside of me that was making me gay. And she knew this because she had once had a demon inside of her that made her gluten intolerant, and she had had that demon cast out, and so she knew it was possible for me as well. And that, I mean, uh, there were a lot... I had a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> but uh, what... I, I found, when she said that, I found myself feeling a lot of different things. I felt angry. I felt hurt. I mean, when I was younger, I was a part of a very conservative Christian community that made me believe that who I was was wrong and that who I was um, as a queer person was possibly caused by demonic possession. So it was bringing up old feelings. It was, it was hurtful. It made me angry. And I found myself wanting to react in one of many different ways. But because I wasn't sure how to respond, I took a moment just to kind of pause and collect myself and take a breath. And when I did, I noticed that she appeared to actually be kind of nervous. She wasn't making eye contact with me. She was looking down at the ground between us. And I, despite myself and everything I was feeling that I think was totally justified, I felt sympathy for her. And because of that, I responded in a way that really surprised me. And I should be clear, this is me at my best. This is me, like, on a very good day. This is not how I... All you have to do is look at my Twitter feed to know this is not how I am all the time. Um, nor do I think everyone has to respond in this way. I think, it's, I think it's important to know your limits in any given moment and protect yourself. But I responded by thanking her. I said, I just want to thank you for telling me something that I'm pretty sure you probably thought I wasn't going to respond very well to. Um, and, you know, I think that's brave. I think it's brave to tell someone something that maybe they're not going to have a positive reaction to, but that, you know you think is important. And I'm going to assume you're telling me this because you care about my well-being. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And because of that, it opened up an opportunity for us to have a conversation because I think the only person more surprised by that reaction than me was her, right? She was expecting to see the demon come to life a little bit in my reaction. And, and I think oftentimes we start at the hardest place in these conversations. We start at the, the point of greatest tension rather than kind of working our way into it. And I found that if you have an opportunity to humanize yourselves to one another first and build toward the sort of harder disagreements, those disagreements are incredibly important, and we shouldn't avoid them, we shouldn't wallpaper over them or pretend that they're not there, but maybe start by asking questions and getting to know each other first. And then you and she went out for breadsticks. Um, so we, did, we did not go out for breakfast. Breadsticks bread yeah. or breakfast. No. Um, and I wish, I mean, honestly, I wish, I'm a, I love stories, right? And I love that moment where someone has like a change of heart. And I would love to say I saw her by the side of the highway as I was leaving town the next day with a big LGBT rights sign or something. <laughs> but the reality is I think she walked away still believing what she believed. I walked away believing what I believed. But I do know that we left that encounter seeing each other as more human. And I think that's an important first step because I learned she had never met an LGBT person before. She had only heard us talked about as this distant, abstract kind of concept. And I just think when it comes to the hardest differences and religious differences are often some of the hardest differences, I think we have to start in, in a place of just getting a little more humanity in there and then maybe some breadsticks. All right, I got to get to a few more questions. I'm looking around. I just, I'm, I've kind of gotten trapped a little bit over here. So I'm looking if you have a 
This question probably is more for Chris, but all three of you could probably answer. So we're here talking about the decline of the church. Um, there's also the decline of many of the traditional civic organizations like the Kiwanas, the Lions, that sort of thing. So kind of my question is, is where do you see people finding community 30 years or so down the road? Yeah. Are we all bowling alone? Yeah. Here. <laughs> so, yeah, no, um, you know, one of the trends is there is um, the rise of non-Christian religion. So I'm Muslim, so that's one of the fastest-growing religions in the world. And also the Baha'i faith. I don't know if people have heard of the Baha'i faith, but that's also another religion that's on the rise. So that's another trend. It's trendy um, to have um, non-Christian religions on the rise, which certainly I did find in my story, surprisingly. Um, I surprised myself. But um, so that's some of the data I know. Um, I went to Hamlin uh, 11 years ago is when I graduated. Now I work there. And back when I was there, there was like little to no Muslim students. And now we have almost like 100, so that certainly has been on the rise um, through both um, immigration laws in the 60s and 70s when more immigrants came to the United States, but also um, one-third of the slaves brought over from um, Africa were Muslim, so it's, it's part of our history to have a lot of religious diversity, and so I think a lot of, um, there's a lot of African-American conversion as well uh, to Islam, so that's kind of on the rise, is like diverse religions, anything that's, you know, not Christianity um, is also a trend that we're seeing with just millennials or just um, worldwide and, and in the United States, including the United States. But so. I'll just, uh, to tack on to this, because this is something that I I worry about, and it goes to some of what Chris was talking about earlier. We started in part the theater of public policy because it's like there aren't places in a lot of cases where people who have like divergent views on a whole batch of issues can like come together and just hear from people who are different than them, sort of in a public, fun setting where they might actually want to be there and come in a way where they're not expecting to like get into a fight with somebody um, or or whatnot. And so I do think about that from a civic point of view, and, you know, I've got to imagine it's something that faith and or, or secular folks think about in that sense of community as well. I would also like to propose that seminary could be a place you could come and find community. Um, we I actually... Did. You did, yeah. We actually have a significant percentage of nuns in our seminary student body, people who don't identify uh, strongly with uh, any affiliation. But so you do get some very interesting conversations and, uh, seriously um, in, in those classrooms. Yeah, the challenge of that is I found community in seminary, but it's a sort of, unless uh, some people do stay for a very long time, I did not. And so it's an, an inherently temporary community, as is, you know, uh, any sort of school program or and I think, I mean, really, I think religion, and this is all just speculation, but based on what I've studied and what I understand, I don't think religious ideas or beliefs are going to just vanish. I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow in Richard Dawkins' dream world. Um, but I do think that we are undergoing a radical reimagining of what community means. And most of the people I know who I talk to who are, um, you know, Christian ministers or imams or rabbis... There is, I think, a, a widespread agreement among most of these folks that I've talked to that the kind of congregational or community kind of model is really changing and that a lot of these communities that have existed are maybe not going to in 50 years. And instead, we're looking to sort of totally different visions for what 
community might look like and mean and how it might function. And we're seeing a lot more people pursuing sort of non-traditional ministry paths, doing very different kind of work in the world. And, I, you know, again, I, I have a hard time saying, like, what it will look like 50 years from now. But I do think that right now we're in a period of great transformation. And I think that we will be in a very different place in 50 years. And I, I think we're just kind of in the earlier stages of that. And I think all the good um, that people have found in religious spaces, that obviously lots of people have found pain, trauma there as well, but the good things that people have found in religious spaces, I think they'll find them other places. I'm just not sure what that looks like yet. And so there's some, there's some emerging research um, out of Harvard, for example. They're studying things like death cafes um, and other places where people gather to explore big questions outside of a religious space. But we're really just in the early stages of trying to understand what that looks like. So, so Okay, I do have one more hand over here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I just have read and then thought about a lot about how science, and especially the science of the universe, has just exploded in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years compared to all the previous times when Galileo got put into prison um, and that under and seeing the universe and how it works is one of the things that make people question the traditional idea of God running the world. And that could be part of why there is more questioning among millennials. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons that millennials give for being disaffected with Christianity, religion, is the inability to kind of reconcile science with faith or the antagonism between the two. And of course, science is always changing. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the scientific structure, the, 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 the way in which we view the world has undergone lots of shifts over the many centuries. And uh, we're, we, maybe technology accelerates that. But yeah, that certainly is... Uh, certainly is an element of this whole question is how how do we think about how do we be religious people in a in a day and age of where sci- in a sense science kind of reigns supreme yeah i mean all i all I would add because this is a whole three more evenings worth of conversation I think come back tomorrow uh, night uh, <laughs> i won 't be here oh. but uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that you know i I think about so I don't consider myself a spiritual person. I don't use the language of spirituality because I find that oftentimes when people hear that, they think something very different than what I would mean. They think something supernatural, something beyond the sort of tangible world. But I really do like Carl Sagan's thoughts on this where he wrote about science not as being in conflict with spirituality, but rather as inspiring spirituality, as being a great sort of source of spiritual inspiration and of, you know, that understanding the world around us and the world beyond us, that we can, that can inspire awe and wonder and a sense of connection and a sense of fulfillment and purpose. And I do think that, you know, a lot of people who are very into science, who are very interested in it, do feel a sense that maybe, you know, is akin to what religious people um, and obviously there are many people who are religious and are very interested in science, but people who are secular and interested in science do feel 
a similar kind of awe and wonder that perhaps a religious person might feel upon entering a religious congregation. And so I think on the one hand, and certainly I know many religious people who talk about, you know, understanding the world around them in a scientific way as being a deep part of their sense of religiosity and spirituality. But I think that that certainly may be a factor. And also I think it's part of this transformation and sort of reimagining period that we're talking about. Um, I, so we're almost out of time. I really would, A, Cindy Beth, uh, who helped organize this evening uh, from uh, United, suggested that we should do this as a whole series. So maybe we will. Um, I, I want to ask one last question. I'm tempted to just uh, rebut and point out that stars are terrifying. Like, you don't find, like, outer space, like, just crazy. So, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to just ask Zan. So folks are going out into the world. They're leaving here, and they've heard all this sort of variety of different things. You have, you get the practice of, like, getting to talk to people about this a lot and people who are at sort of different stages in their faith journey. So what do you... What, what would be your advice to people if they, they run into somebody who is sort of struggling with these things that we've been talking about tonight and how to talk to them, uh, meet them where they're at and, and work with them in, in a way that is not patronizing or oppressive but actually thoughtful and kind? Yeah, no, I think um, really just listen to them, like I said, non-judgmentally and then... Um, you don't put your beliefs on them, obviously, would be kind of a good starter, too. Um, I think that's what drove me away from Christianity is, like, the shoving Christianity down my throat constantly. It really turned me off growing up. Um, so I think, um, and also do research, too. Like, in my spare time, I love attending, like, different religious sites all across the Twin Cities. So maybe get out there and learn, you know, so you can be a more empowered advocate and ally to other people when they come to you from another religion um, wondering what should I do or, oh, you know, I'm Catholic. I want to, you know, change to, you know, Lutheran. What should I do? Um, so I don't know if that's helpful at all. But, no, yeah. that, that, that's very helpful. Uh, so with that very positive, uh, optimistic, helpful note, please, a tremendous round of applause for all of our amazing guests. Uh, Zane Chris, Kyle Roberts, Chris Stedman. We're going to take off. We're going to get off this. The show was recorded live at the Amsterdam Barn Hall in St. Paul. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. It was also made possible by a cultural star grant from the city of St. Paul.